Welcome to the third Sunday of Epiphany. It's a season in which we are pursuing aha moments about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We anticipated his birth for over 40 days during the season of Advent and celebrated his birth for another two weeks, but now we are encountering Jesus as an adult, all grown up. Luke tells us in his gospel account that the buildup around John the Baptist's birth was so exceptional that people wondered to themselves, what then will this child be? But we are answering that question of Jesus and not of John, because John was merely the forerunner for Jesus, the opening act, if you will. And if the forerunner's birth stirred such excitement in the hearts of those who knew him that they watched his life with great anticipation, then how much more closely ought we to focus our attention on Jesus of Nazareth, since John was the lesser of the two individuals? During Epiphany, we answer the question of, what then will this child be, when asked of Jesus? And in tracing his movements and listening intently to his speech, we find Jesus to be the most unique and wonderful of all people. Because while he is completely human, he is also completely divine. And the things he did, he did perfectly on our behalf. Every action of his contains within it this implicit invitation to join him and discover hope for your souls. And this morning, we join Jesus in the wilderness, a world of beige and brown, set off in sharp contrast to the pale blue sky where the white sun reigns over the land, unchallenged by any cloud or branch that might offer respite to the miserable soul who wanders there. The desert stands in stark relief from the scene of Jesus' last appearance. When we last saw Jesus... He was standing in the Jordan River with water dripping down his beard and shoulders. The shrubbery that lined the bank of the river was green, black in the shadows, and animals chortled in the trees overhead. It was a scene that brimmed with life. In comparison to the desert, the Jordan River was a garden. But Jesus left that garden in order to wander a land where the mention of animals was not sweet and cheerful, but struck an ominous note, because life was sustained on a razor's edge out there, and only the strong survived. Why would any person venture out into such an inhospitable environment? One would only go there out of necessity, and for Jesus, this was a trip of necessity. It is true that he was escorted into the wilderness, Matthew explicitly stating in the first verse of our passage that the Spirit led him there. And it is true that the Greek word used to describe his conveyance into the desert is passive, indicating that Jesus was a passenger and the Spirit was the one doing the driving. But that does not mean that Jesus went unwillingly into that barren land. See, Jesus, like his predecessor, John the Baptist, acted and spoke with great intentionality. He was conscientiously living out a story that had already been lived by others, walking down a path that people thousands of years before him had trodden. Not because it was a 
particularly glorious, glorious one, like the past that spiritual pilgrims today retrace, like the Via Francigena that runs from Canterbury to Rome or the Camino de Santiago in Spain, but precisely because it was a story, a path in need of redemption. It was the story of humanity and specifically the story of God's people. And Jesus went back and he relived that story in order to redeem it and make it good. And this required Jesus to act in unexpected and unusual ways. Last week we explored the baptism of Jesus and we highlighted two things about Jesus' baptism, the confusion of John and the insistence of Jesus. John the Baptist was confused by Jesus' request for baptism because his baptism was a rite of repentance. And Jesus, being God, had no need to repent. But Jesus insisted for righteousness' sake. In other words, Jesus' actions make sense only when you understand that his mission was the redemption of humanity, the act of making what is unrighteous righteous in him, which meant that Jesus has to do for us what we ourselves are unable to do in our fallenness. He repented for us through baptism, and this morning we see him once again acting in an unusual way for our sake, traveling into a ruthless wilderness when he was in a weakened and vulnerable state after a 40-day fast. But he went out of necessity and out of love, not under compulsion. Jesus went into the wasteland in order to redeem our story and make it good. We read in our text that while the confirmation of God the Father at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, while that was still ringing in his ears, the text says that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the, into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. Everyone was in on this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, like his baptism, was necessary to accomplish righteousness for humanity, and that was the grand intention of our triune God, to bring you back into relationship with himself by sending Jesus to not only pay the penalty of our disobedience, but also to go back over our lives, to comb through them, and to obey where we have disobeyed so that our entire lives are redeemed in him. And he can present us, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, holy and blameless before God our Father. And the proof of this work of Jesus Christ on our behalf is in the echoes that sound throughout his unusual trip into the wilderness to be tempted. Whenever reading the Old Testament, particularly Matthew's Gospel, as we are this morning, the way to read is one, one ear listening to what is being said in the New Testament and a second ear towards the Old Testament. Detach the Old Testament from the New Testament and you're left with an anemic, an anemic story. Scripture for the New Testament authors was the Old Testament. So everything they write is with reference to those scriptures. And in the temptation of Jesus, there are two Old Testament stories echoing throughout that convey, convey the significance of Jesus' actions on our behalf. And at this point, we have a choice to make. I can take the time this morning to preach 
about both Old Testament stories echoing throughout Jesus' temptation, but it will be about 35 to 40 minutes long, or I can preach about one of the echoes and leave the second for you to listen for as you read the story at your, at, on your own at home. So all those in favor of the longer sermon say aye. I won't ask if there are any opposed. We'll explore to get to together this morning the way in which Jesus' temptation echoes the story of Adam and Eve. But there's a second Old Testament story that is echoed in Jesus' temptation, and that is a story of Israel's journey through the wilderness, narrated for us in the book of Exodus. Heard You heard it in, in the Old Testament reading in Numbers this morning. I'm going to do the work of tracing the similarities of Adam's and Jesus' stories. But you go home. Go home and read the story of Jesus' temptation. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And then read the book of Exodus, particularly chapters 16 and 17. And read the Old Testament passage that's printed in your bulletin, Numbers. And write down the similarities, the differences that exist between the two. And ask yourself or your spouse or somebody else why those similarities or intentional differences are present and what do they tell us about Jesus. That's all we're going to do right now regarding Adam and Eve's story, which echoes throughout the story of Jesus' temptation. So you'll have a bit of a template for you. So without further ado, let's talk about Adam and Eve and the light of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Adam and Eve were the first, pers- first people to be tempted. God set them in a lush garden. They were surrounded by fruit trees and rivers and animals that were as innocent as they were imposing in size. They were denied nothing but the fruit of one tree. They could feast from every tree but one. But even in these plush conditions, the lies of Satan took root in their hearts and bred dissatisfaction, and suspicion. Satan introduced the possibility that God does not mean what he says, and that his intentions are selfish. Did God really say? These were the words that echoed in their ears and sowed suspicion in their hearts. Did God really say? These were the words that, like a wedge, began to create distance between God and His creatures until they severed their relationship with Him by taking the forbidden fruit and eating. They set out on their own. And instantly, the deception of Satan became clear, but the deed and the damage were already done. Having so offended God, they could no longer stay in the garden and live in His presence, so He escorted them out of the garden to work a land that was full of thorns and thistles, a wilderness. They wanted, to make it their own. they wanted to make it on their own, and so he let them. And to keep them from trying to storm the gates of Eden and regain access through their own might, God employed an angel to stand guard at the gate. This is the story of humanity. Because Adam was our representative, When he sinned, we sinned in him and became guilty before God. And we prove ourselves to be children of Adam daily when out of our fallen nature we try to live life in our own strength and wisdom apart from God, no matter how easy and plush our environment. And so humanity continues our exile away from God, miserable, but really trying to convince ourselves that really we're happy. Jesus came to 
redeem us from this misery and this false happiness, whether we wanted it or not, by reliving the story of Adam and becoming for us a a second Adam, a new representative human being who would obey where Adam and Eve disobeyed. And so we see Jesus in the Jordan River, an environment reminiscent of Eden, with its lush green bushes and birds singing in the trees and a river running through it. But Jesus would not be tempted in a garden like Adam and Eve. No, Jesus set out to reverse their story. Instead of being tempted in a lush garden where he was denied nothing, Jesus would instead be tempted in the wilderness where he was denied everything, fasting from everything for 40 days. And through his obedience in the wilderness, he would gain access for us into the garden, into the presence of God. Jesus reversed the outcome of Adam and Eve's story. They were disobedient in the garden and exiled to the wilderness, but Jesus was obedient in the wilderness in order to restore us to the garden, to the presence of God. In the wilderness, Jesus heard the same exact temptations the devil used to seduce Adam and Eve away from God. He lacked sorely in creativity. In Eden, Satan questioned God's sincerity, whispering, Did God really say? But for Jesus it was not, did God really say? But if you really are the Son of God, prove it. Remember after Jesus' baptism, the clouds parted, and the Father declared, bellowed from the heavens, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Those words were still lingering in the air when Satan put his challenge to Jesus. If you really are, the Son of God, then prove it. In other words, you don't need Him to testify about you, to tell you who you are. You can prove your worth on your own, through your own might. He was trying to get Jesus to doubt the Father and rely on Himself, just as He did with Adam and Eve. The temptation is the same. He's trying to get Jesus to believe that God doesn't mean what He says. And instead of trusting the Father, he must demonstrate his value through an exercise of personal strength, through wisdom, beauty, whatever it is we do, by turning stones into bread. Or he must put the Father to the test and force him to prove that the Father really meant what he said by throwing himself off the temple so that angels would have to catch him. He was trying to get Jesus to doubt God and take things into his own hands. It's the sin that humanity repeats to this day, and Jesus obeys where not only Adam and Eve disobeyed, but we have as well. And in each temptation, Jesus refuses. He clings to God. And the last verse of the story, which would be easy to miss, is really important when considering that Jesus is reliving humanity's story in order to redeem it. Satan leaves Jesus, and what does Matthew say happens in verse 11? Verse 11 reads, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The angels came to Jesus and were ministering to him. The angels in Adam's story were employed to keep humanity at a distance from God, but the angels in Jesus' story are God's ministers to care for him in his weakness. In Adam's story, the angels are an expression of God's displeasure, but in Jesus' story, they are an expression of God's love. 
Jesus lived our story, the story of a rebellious humanity, and reverses it by obeying where we were disobedient in order that we might be able to return to God and know such love and experience his care and concern for us as well. This is the very point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 5 where he's comparing Adam and Jesus and he writes this, As one trespass led to condemnation for all of humanity, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all of humanity. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. By one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This obedient man was Jesus Christ who obeyed when we were disobedient in order to redeem us from our sin and from Adam and make us righteous in him. He became for us a new Adam, a second Adam. Through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God and will inherit not just heaven, but an eternal, unfading, uncompromised earth, an Edenic-like paradise where there is no test or temptation because he has already passed it for us. All things will be ours. We will be denied nothing. This is the very point that the Apostle Paul also makes in 1 Corinthians 15 where he writes, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, through his obedience on our behalf and our faith in him, Jesus promises to make our bodies of ash and dust eternal and heavenly. In Jesus, we move from guilty to forgiven, from rebellious to redeemed. He was obedient even to the point of death so that we, the rebellious, might have life to the fullest restored to us. And all this is available if you but trust him which has been the question that the devil has been tempting humanity with since the beginning of time. Is he really trustworthy? And the answer to that question is yes. Because God does not just stand at a distance and make demands on us, but he provides what he requires. He requires obedience, and he has sent to us one that is obedient for us, that we might know the love of God. This one is Jesus Christ, the faithful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.